Well, I invite you to take your copy of God's Word this morning and be turning to the book of Ephesians once again. Ephesians chapter 4, and today we want to look at verses 5 through 7. Ephesians uh, 5, excuse me, I said 4, right? Ephesians 5, verses 5 through 7. And the title of the message is, What We Know With Certainty. What We Know With Certainty. Ephesians chapter 5. Verses 5 through 11. The Word of God says this. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This makes it very clear that God has given us certainty, has it not? Has He not? God has told us here things that we must know for certain, and that we must know these things with certainty. And when we take the things that God has said that we must know with certainty, and we treat them as if they are uncertain, and we treat them as if they are untrue, well, I believe we dishonor God, and I believe, really, we fall into a satanic deception, because really, Satan would love nothing more than to have us take God's certainties and treat them as if they are uncertain. And I love the way that verse 5 begins. Look at it again. He says, For this you know with certainty. For this you know with certainty. And so today, from verses 5 through 7, what I want to share with you are five spiritual certainties that we can know. Five things that we can know for sure from these three verses. And I want us just to get right into these things. So you have your bulletins there. You'll see the outline. You'll see the flow, the main points that we're going to look at. And so first of all, I want you to notice with me that it is certain that sanctification follows justification. It is certain that sanctification follows justification. You say, well, man, what do you mean by that? Well, just simply this. When we think about justification, what is justification? Justification is to be declared by God to be righteous on the basis of the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what justification is. The very moment you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and as your Savior, not only were all your sins forgiven, but God took all of the perfect righteousness of His Son and He imputed that righteousness to your account. So that based upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, God Himself has taken that Put it to your account, and based upon that, you are now declared to be righteous. Not because you are righteous, but because of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God declares you, because of Christ, to be righteous. That is justification. It is to be declared righteous based upon the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is received through faith alone in Christ alone. But know this. Anyone and everyone 
who has been justified by God in that way has also been made a new creation. They've been made a new creation. And, and God immediately goes to work in their life. And not only has He declared them righteous, but immediately He goes to work in their life actually making them righteous. And He produces uh, a righteousness in their life. He changes their life. God has broken the dominion of sin that used to be in our lives. God has broken the slavery that we had to sin in our lives as unbelievers. And He has set us free from that. He has set us free from the bondage of sin. Now, can believers sin? Everyone in this room who's a believer should say yes. Amen. Absolutely, we can sin. But now, what about this question? Are believers in bondage to sin? Must believers sin? And the answer to that is no. No. Why? Because there is a new principle that is at work in our lives. There is a new nature. There is, we have eternal life. We have the Holy Spirit of God. That is in our lives. And so what is the result of the bondage of sin being broken in our life? What is the result of the new life that we have received? The result of all of that is this. We will more and more progressively over our Christian lives, we will take on the very character of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because people who have truly been justified, people who have truly been saved, they are taken by God and they are changed by God so that their life becomes one of having an increasing pattern of righteousness in their life. And you know what? You can know that. You can know that with certainty. You can know that for sure. You say, well, man, well, where, where do you get that from? That someone who's truly saved, who's truly justified, that their life is going to change. Well, we get it right here from verse 5. Look at it again. For this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No one who has an inheritance in the kingdom of God, lives a lifestyle like the one described here in verse 5. In other words, we can say this, say it this way. Someone who has lived this way, someone who has lived immorally, someone who has lived impurely, someone who has lived as a covetous person, as a lifestyle, someone who is an idolatrous person, they have never been saved. They are someone who this says does not belong to the kingdom of Christ and God. And they are someone who, if they continue to live that way, if these things continue to be the description of their lives, the characteristics of their lives, they will never do what this says. They will never have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And this says, you know what? You can know that with certainty. Anyone who lives this way, anyone who lives a lifestyle of sin, anyone who, who lives in a pattern of sin, that individual, that person is not saved. That's what this is saying. Now, just as important as what it does say is what it does not say. 
Because look at the verse again. It, it does not say that anyone who has ever committed an immoral act, well, that person cannot be a Christian. It does not say that anyone who has ever had uh, an impure thought or act cannot be a Christian. It does not say that anyone who, had, who, had, who has ever been covetous for something that their neighbor has, they, they cannot be a Christian. It does not say that anyone who in their life takes something and puts it in a place of God where God's rightful place should be, that is idolatry, that anyone who does that, whoever does that, that they cannot be a Christian. It doesn't say that, right? And we ought to give thanks to God that it doesn't say that, right? Because Christians do these things. Christians sin in these ways from time to time. Every one of us have committed these kinds of sins who are truly saved. So that's not what this verse is teaching here. Really, you know what this verse is talking about? This verse is talking about certain kinds of people. Really, that's what it's talking about. It's talking about immoral people, impure people, covetous people, idolatrous people. It, it is a, this is the character of their lives. This is just the pattern of their behavior. This is the, the flavor of their life. If you, look, if you know these people, you know this person, and you look at the flow of their life, this is who they are here. And they prove it. Because, because of what they enjoy. They enjoy these things and the way they, they prove that they enjoy these things is because this is actually how they live. That they live this way. And so someone who, who, who lives in these kinds of sins, and there are other sins in the New Testament. This is not an exhaustive list here. But people who, who live in a lifestyle of sin in general are people who have never been truly saved. And this says that you can know that with certainty. And you know what that means? That really means this. That really means that in this sense, this ought to be like one of the most self-evident things to, to us in all the world here. I mean, he treats this as if, hey, Christians, this is something you ought to know. You ought to know this. He says in verse 5, for this you know with certainty. I mean, this is something that believers ought to know. And I think we ought to know it for a couple of reasons. Let me give these to you. First of all, we ought to know it based upon our own experience. Based upon our own experience. Anyone in this place who has truly been redeemed, you know that right now... You have a relationship to sin that is different than the relationship you had to sin before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, you know this. You, you know this out of your own life. You know that you have a relationship with God that you did not have before. You, you came to know Him. And you know that despite those times that you have in your Christian life, where, where yes, you, you fall short, and there are times you fail, and there are things that you are guilty of, and they, they grieve your heart, you know that on the whole, that your life has forever taken a new direction. And you are going in a new way. And you could never again be that person who lived that life, that pattern, that existence. You can never be that person again that you were before you came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Your own experience 
teaches you that, that once someone has truly been saved, well, well, they have been changed. They have been changed in a real way. They have been changed in a tangible way. And they have been changed in that way forever. Forever. They've been changed. So that's the first way we can know it. Second, we can know it based upon the Word of God. We can know it based upon the Scriptures. Because the Word of God, in, in, in the most obvious of terms, presents this truth to us. Let me give you some examples here. For example, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9, it says, Or do you not know? I mean, are you, are you hearing that again? <laughs> or do you not know? In other words, is this not obvious to you, believer? Do you not know this? Isn't this something that we should all know? He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. I mean, that's like the same thing it says in our text, right? In Ephesians chapter 5. I mean, they have no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And they do not belong to Christ as living children. They are not His children. And he goes on to say, speaking about these, these truly born-again Corinthians who are in the church at Corinth. He says this in verse 11, But such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, meaning you, you were set apart, set apart from this, this, this unbelieving group of people, set apart from this unbelieving world. But you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of God. In other words, this is who you used to be, but you know what? You're not that anymore. You're not these people anymore. You're not these people living these lifestyles anymore because this is who you are not anymore. You're not this. There's been a change. He says you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. You have truly been transformed by the Holy Spirit of God. You are not what you used to be. Revelation chapter 22 Verse 15, speaking of the city of God, says this, Outside, outside are the dogs and the sorcerers and the immoral persons and the murderers and the idolaters and everyone who loves and practices lying. Now, in that verse, if he's just talking about positional truth. I mean, he's just saying, okay, everyone who has not been saved, well, they are immoral and they are this and they are that. That's just kind of who they are in their disposition. Uh, but once you have been saved, you've been forgiven there. If he was just talking about forgiveness, he would not have said what he said at the end of the verse. At the end of the verse, he says, everyone who loves and practices lying. He's not talking about just their disposition toward these things. He's talking about their actual practice. Their, their practice, their, their living out. You see, that is what we do. In our practice, we live out what we really believe to be true. We live out who we really are. 
I mean, you can try to talk a good game, but eventually everyone's going to see who you are because you just end up living out who you really are. And so that's what this is talking about. Someone who practices immorality, someone who practices lying, someone who, this says, loves lying. That's the kind of person who gives evidence that they have never been saved at all. Revelation chapter 21 Verse 27, again, speaking of the heavenly city, says this, And nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I mean, well, what does that say there? It says that if your name has been written in the Lamb's book of life, the Lord will certainly save you, but it also says that as He saves you, he will certainly change you. He will change you. He's going to save you. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, but He is going to save you, and you are not. He's going to change you, and you're not going to be one of these people who practices abomination and lying. His salvation will save you. Yes, justification, but His salvation will also change you. Sanctification. Or as Jesus said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. He who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. In other words, someone who really knows the Lord, their, their life has been changed, and their life now takes on a different character. Before it was a character of disobedience, but now... It is the character of obedience, of righteousness, of walking in the truth. Or as it said in John chapter 8, verse 31, So Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed Him, If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. If you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine. And so over and over and over again, the Bible presents us with who we will not be if we are truly saved. How we will not live if we have truly been saved. But the Bible not only presents this truth in, in negative terms, what we won't be if we've been saved, but the Bible also presents this, this truth in terms of God's entire purpose for saving us. I mean, think about it. Why did God save you? I mean, why did He save you? What was it simply just to forgive you? Was it simply just to, to justify you? Was that, was that the whole reason that God saved you? Or is there something more? Because in Romans 6, we're told there's something more. Romans chapter 6, verse 6. Listen to what it says here. Knowing this, that our old self, that, that's who we were in Adam, our old self was crucified with Him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. In other words, a, a life lived in bondage to sin, a life lived uh, to the deeds of the body of sin, in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Now listen to this. So that we would no longer be slaves of sin, for He who has died is freed from sin. That's, that's why Christ saved you. There are many reasons He saved you, but this is one reason here. He died to free you. 
To free you from sin. As this says, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Or as Titus chapter 2 verse 14 says, who gave Himself for us. Why? Why did the Lord give Himself for you? Why did the Lord lay down His life for you? To forgive me my sins. To justify me. What does Titus say? Who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. And that, that is talking about the present. That, that is that we might live godly in this present age. There's Romans chapter 8 verse 11 puts it. But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. Now listen to this. For if you live according to the flesh, you must die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. How do you recognize them? How, how do you recognize who, well, who are the sons of God and who are not? How do we recognize this? When we look at, at, at a lost and dying world, how do we know who are the sons of God and who are not? This says that they are those, the sons of God, who are being led by the Spirit of God. And how does the Spirit of God lead them? He leads them, it says, to put to death the deeds of the body. To put to death sin in their life. You'll know them, the sons of God, those who are truly saved, you'll know them because there will be an increasing pattern of righteousness in their lives. That's how you'll know them. Or one more. As a matter of fact, turn over to this one. I want you to see this. 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3. And I want to tell you that, I mean, this is just so clear on the matter here. I mean, this is just crystal clear. I mean, you have to be a blind person to not see this. 1 John chapter 3. And I really think we need to be reminded of this. 1 John chapter 3, and, and look beginning in verse 4. 1 John chapter 3, verse 4. Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. You know, wait, hold on. We got it again, right? You know. You know. I love this because over and over in Scripture it treats of the things that we should know as Christians. John is saying, you should know this. You know. You know that He appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him there is no sin. No one who abides in Him sins. That's in the present tense. That, that is speaking of a, a lifestyle of sin. A pattern of sin. That your life is just characteristics of just outright sinning. We know that no one sins uh, who abides in Him sins. No one who sins has seen Him or knows Him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as He is righteous. The one who practices sin, what does the Bible say? Is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. 
The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who, and notice that again and again throughout this passage, he, he uses these, these, these all-inclusive terms here. Uh, there are no exceptions to this rule. No exceptions. Everyone, he says in verse 4. No one, he says twice in verse 6. No one, he says in verse 7. The one in verse 7. The one who practices sin in verse 8. And then he says in verse 9 here, no one who is born of God practices sin because his seed, in other words, that is the new nature, abides in him and he cannot sin. Meaning he cannot sin as a lifestyle. Meaning he, he cannot just go on in his lostness like he has been before. He cannot sin. Why? Look at it. Because he is born of God. Could it be any clearer than that? But, but in, case, in case somehow we miss it, look at what he says in verse 10. Let's just sum it up right here. By this the children of God and the children of the devil are what? Obvious. This should be obvious. We should know. We should know with certainty. This should be obvious. Here it is. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. you got to love John. John just cuts right through it, right? It's either black or it's white. There's no gray here. You're either one or the other. Obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. This, you see, is a certainty. It is certain. Wherever there has been justification, there will, mark it, there will be sanctification. Where there, where there, where there has been forgiveness, there is going to be a growth in grace. There's going to be a growth in holiness. There's going to be a growth in the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ that will be there. Now, I, I, mean, I have to tell you the truth. There are those who hate this truth. There are those who, who, who really hate this truth. And amazingly, there are many of those who, in the name of Christ, who in the name of Christ and in, in the name of Scripture, they, they hate this truth and they will say this, well, if you believe that, then aren't you basically, practically teaching salvation by works? If, if you believe all of that that we just looked at, don't... Doesn't that mean that, that this is salvation by works? In other words, doesn't this confuse people about the message of grace? In other words, here's the issue. Okay, on the one hand, you tell us, okay, we're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That just simply believing, just believing in the Son of God in true saving faith, that in and of itself and nothing else. It means all of your sins are forgiven and, and it means all of your, all of His righteousness is put to your account. But yet now, now, on the other hand, you're telling me that if I do not live a, a certain kind of life, if I do not live a life of obedience, that, that I should have no hope at all. That I am really in the faith. That, that if I don't live a certain kind of life, I can't have any biblical assurance 
whatsoever that I have really trusted in Christ at all. I mean, when you say that, aren't you really just teaching salvation by works? Aren't you teaching assurance by works? I mean, how, how, how do you put these things together? Now, I want you to listen to me very, very carefully, okay? Because this is so important. And I think so many people really miss this, that the way you put these things together is you have to remember this regarding salvation. You cannot take one aspect of salvation and then divorce it from all the other aspects of salvation. You can't do that. And there are people who want to do that. They want to take one thing, justification, We've got all the things of salvation here, and we're going to take justification, we're going to take it out, we're going to separate it, we're going to put it over here, and we're just going to focus about justification. We're just going to talk about justification. And I want to say this as clear as I can. Make no doubt about it. Mark it down. Put it down. This is our stake in the, in, in the ground. There is no way to be, saved, to be saved, to be justified, except for one way. It is believing upon the Lord Jesus Christ by faith alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. That is how someone is justified, plus nothing else. That is justification. But listen, that's justification, but justification is not the only aspect of salvation. Justification is not the only aspect. There's also the aspect of regeneration in salvation. There's also the aspect of sanctification in salvation. And you know what? Praise God. One day there will also be the aspect of what? Glorification in our salvation as well, right? And so, so what we need to understand is this. Anyone, anyone at all who, who is who is in on any one of these, well, they have to be in on every one of these, right? I mean, I mean they, they have to. That is, if, if you've been justified, you've had to have been regenerated. You've had to have been. It, you, you, you had to have been made a new creation of Christ. You had to have been born again. And as a result of being born again, as a result of being regenerated, well, now all of a sudden you saw Christ with new eyes. You heard the gospel with new ears. And that is why you believed. And that is why you had faith in Christ. And because you believed and had faith in Christ, that is why you were justified. But your justification comes as a result of regeneration, being made a new creation in Christ. And then having been justified, having been made this new creation in Christ, where now you have the Holy Spirit living within you, well now you are going to be sanctified. God is going to do His work in you because He who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Christ Jesus. And this is part of your salvation. This is part of you being saved. So you will be sanctified. So everyone who is regenerated and everyone who is justified, they are being sanctified. And every one of them will one day stand before the Lord face to face glorified. All of the sin removed from their lives forever. 
never to have to deal with it again. And so if you're, if you're in on one of these aspects of salvation, well, you're in on all of it. So, if you meet with someone who says, well, yeah, I, I've been justified, but there's no evidence whatsoever of regeneration in their life that they've been made into a new creation. There's no evidence whatsoever in their life that they're being sanctified, that they're growing in Christ. Well, then what possible hope do they have one day of being glorified? I would say they have no hope. No hope whatsoever. You see, they're, what, what they're trying to argue, they're trying to argue an impossibility. They're trying to argue that God would do one aspect of salvation in their life and not do any of the others. And that is an impossibility. You, you will not find that in the Word of God. That, that's something that the Word of God knows nothing about. Nothing at all. The justification that Scripture speaks of is always, always, always followed by sanctification. Always. I love what R.C. Sproul said about this. He said this, quote, the reformers said that justification is by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. True faith, if you're really resting in Christ and you're really counted righteous by God, will immediately, necessarily, and inevitably produce the fruit of sanctification. End quote. And that's why the Apostle Paul can say in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5, for this you know with certainty that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That is an impossibility that someone has really been saved by Christ, yet their lifestyle, their lifestyle is still one of immorality and impurity and covetousness and idolatry. Now, this leads to a, a second certainty. And by the way, these will be shorter than that one, okay? So don't, don't fret. I know you're like, oh, point number two. Uh, but a second certainty that we see here, and I want you to notice with me, because really this goes hand in hand with the first one. Number two, it is certain that salvation results in a change in kingdoms. A change in kingdoms. Look at what he says at the end of verse 5 in Ephesians chapter 5. That no one like this, he says, has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now I want to ask you a question here. What, what children have this inheritance? Who will one day be revealed as the children of God? Who, who, who are the citizens of this kingdom that he's talking about here? And did you know that the Bible teaches that all creation waits for this? That all creation waits for this revelation, this revealing? Who are the sons of God? Romans chapter 3 verse 19 says, for uh, chapter 8 verse 19, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. So who will be, who will be revealed that day? Who, who's going to, to be shown to be the sons of God that day? It is this. 
It is people who in their lifetime on this earth that they already experienced a transfer in kingdoms. That's who it is. Everyone who will be in that revealed, consummated kingdom one day will be someone who during their lifetime was saved. And what that means is this. They were taken out of the kingdom of darkness and they were transferred while alive, while in this world, they were transferred, uh, spiritually transferred into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ and His Son. Or we can say it another way, that if you're born again, you've already experienced a change in kingdoms. You once belonged to the kingdom of darkness. That was our first birth. We were birthed into that kingdom. But if you've been born again, you have been born into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and you know, we, we've seen this over and over on our Wednesday night studies in Daniel. If you're not coming out on Wednesday nights, I really want to invite you to come out to those. But in Daniel, over and over, we've been talking about kingdoms, 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 kingdoms. And one of the things we've really nailed down is you cannot have a kingdom unless you have a what? A king, right? You've got to have a king to have a kingdom. And wherever you have a king, what do you have? You have rule. You have reign. You have a king who's ruling. And so anyone who's been saved, they have been brought into a new kingdom. And there's a king in that new kingdom. And the name of that king in that new kingdom is Christ. Christ reigns in that kingdom. And so in coming to the king, in believing upon the king, you have submitted to his rule. You have bowed the knee to that king. And it is a certainty, it is a certainty that everyone who has been saved has experienced this, this transfer into this new kingdom. You say, well, where, where do we get that from? Well, turn over to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, because I want us all to see this together, okay? Where, where we get this from. This is very important. I want you to, to see it, to actually turn to it, to see it, not just hear it from me, but to see it with your own eyes. Colossians chapter 1, and look at verse 13. Listen to what it says here. For He, now that's talking about the Father, for He, the Father, rescued us from the domain of darkness and, now look at what it says very carefully, okay? And one day will transfer us into the kingdom of His Son. Is that what your version says? If your version says that, you need to get rid of that Bible, okay? Because that is not what it says. Now look at it. It doesn't say, will transfer us into the kingdom. It says, transferred, past tense, us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. When did He do that? He did that at the very moment you trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. Verse 14, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And that is to say this, the whole world right now, in this sense, can be divided up into just two different groups of people. On the one end, you have one group of people, and they are the people who have submitted to the rule and the reign of the Lord Jesus Christ in His kingdom. And then on the other hand, you have people who have rejected Christ as king. And they have not submitted to his rule. They have not submitted to his reign because they are not in his kingdom. 
And those are the only two groups you have here. And if you're a Christian, I mean, you know this about you, that you live your life on this earth and, and you're in a new domain. You, you've come to know what it is experientially to bow your knee to a king and to live every day of your life. Not perfectly, imperfectly, yes, but yet still to live every day of your life under the rule and the reign of King Jesus. And that is different because you're in His kingdom. And there are others who are not in His kingdom. And then there are times in all of our lives where, where it grieves us because we fall short of this. We know when we sin, we dishonor our King. We know that. And when we're uh, just not as submitted as we ought to be. But it is still true to say that the character of our life is that we are one who has come under the rule and reign of the Lord Jesus Christ because we've been transferred into His kingdom. And you can know this for certain. Everyone who has an inheritance in this kingdom because they've been transferred into the kingdom of God, they are His spiritual son, His spiritual daughter, they will have been changed. And the reason they are changed is because they're under the rule and reign of Christ. And the reason they're under the rule and reign of Christ is because they're in His kingdom. There's been a transfer of kingdoms. So go back to Ephesians 5 because there's a third certainty we see here. A third thing that we can know with certainty that I want you to see with me. Number three, it is certain that any concept uh, any other concept, I should say, of salvation is deception. Mark it down. Know this for certain. Any other concept of salvation is deception. Look at Ephesians 5, verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, what things? It's the things he just talked about in verse 5. In other words, the Apostle Paul is saying this. Listen, if anyone denies what I've just said in verse 5, you can know this. His words are empty. That's what he's saying here. The, the words are empty. That the, the word empty there means vain. It means deceptive. And then he says, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Any other concept of salvation is deception. Now, that right there, that really tells us something. That, that even though this should be obvious to Christians, that th this very simple truth that, hey, if you're saved, you should live differently. That just should be just so obvious here. Even though that ought to be so obvious to us, so clear to us, even though we should know that, as he says here, with certainty, there will be some who in the name of Christ and no doubt using, using logic, and even no doubt using the Word of God, just taking certain texts and piecing them together as sort of proof texting, and they will come in the name of Christ, and they will deny the truth that we see clearly here in verse 5. And they'll say, well, oh no, that, that, that can't be right. Let, let me show you that because justification is by faith alone and Christ alone, you can be saved and yet your life never changed one single day that you're on this earth until you get to heaven. You can be truly saved 
and there not be one shred, one iota of difference in your life until you get to heaven. But you just simply believing upon Christ is enough. Because, because of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. And yet, Paul tells us in verse 6, that that kind of teaching represents emptiness. Just empty words, vain words. In other words, the, the, those are lies. That, that is deception. And as we said earlier, this is so important. When it comes to the salvation that Christ grants to us and gives to us, you cannot be in on one aspect of salvation and not in on all the others. That is not the salvation that Christ grants. That is not it. And anyone who teaches that you can be, that is deceptive. Because everyone who has been justified will be sanctified. And for someone to say, you can be justified, you can be made right with God, and you can never, ever, ever show one aspect of sanctification, that is not what the Word of God says. And the Word of God actually says about that, that it is deceptive. It is devilish, it is satanic, and any other concept of salvation, other than what we see Paul saying here in verse 5, that is deception. And this leads to a fourth certainty. Notice this, number four. It is certain that God's wrath will come down upon the sons of disobedience. It is certain that the sons of disobedience will experience the wrath of God. Look at verse six again. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Well, what does this phrase mean, the, the sons of disobedience? Well, flip over to Ephesians 2. Look at verse 3 there, because, because there we find a very similar statement. He's talking about who we were before we came to know Christ as Lord and Savior. And he describes us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 3, as children of wrath. So, children of wrath, sons of disobedience. What... What does that mean? It means this, that, that if you're unconverted, if, if you are as you were when you were born into this world, you are by your own very nature a disobedient person toward God. You're disobedient toward God. You, you are a son of disobedience. That, this, is, this is what marks your life. You're disobedient toward God. And that is why you live a lifestyle of sin. That is why your whole lifestyle is regarded as one of sin. It is because you are a disobedient person. Children of wrath. Sons of disobedience. And because we are sons of disobedience from birth, all men and women who are born this way are deserving of wrath. Wrath. The wrath of an almighty, holy God. Children of wrath. In other words, we are deserving of the wrath of God. But now, if you look over at verse 1 of chapter 5, if you've been saved, you are no longer this. You are no longer a son of disobedience. You're no longer a child of wrath. Now you are a what? Verse 1, chapter 5. You are a beloved child, your beloved children. That's what this says. So how, how, how does this happen? 
How do you go from being a, 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 a son of disobedience, a child of wrath, to being a beloved child of God? How does that happen? How do you go from one to the other? It is because you have been saved by grace. That is what he's talking about here. How do you go from being one who is a son of disobedience, a child of wrath, to being one who in verse 1 is commanded to be an imitator of God? I mean, what, what has to happen here? It is salvation through faith in Christ. That is what happens here. It is the new birth. That is how it happens. Now, everyone who has not experienced that, everyone who has not experienced that new birth, everyone who has not trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior, this is a certainty, what it says right here, that the wrath of God will come upon them. Look at it. It says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And I think it would be fitting for us just to say a couple of things about the wrath of God that we need to know and understand. First of all is this. We have to say that the wrath of God is a fact. It is a fact. There are many people, and I want to tell you, some even in evangelical churches today, there are many people who, who will not talk about the wrath of God. They, they want to treat the wrath of God as something that, hey, we just want to put it over here. We don't really want to talk about it. We don't want to bring it up. And, you know, maybe it just won't even happen. You know, the, the, this wrath of God that the Scripture talks about. Almost as if it, maybe it won't take place. Maybe, maybe no one will ever taste the wrath of God. But the Bible doesn't treat the wrath of God as a maybe. The Bible treats the wrath of God as a certainty, right? That's what we've been seeing in this whole passage. Verse 6, For because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. It is a certainty. It is a fact. The second thing we can say about this in this verse that we're taught about the wrath of God is that we're taught that there's more than one aspect of the wrath of God. Now, when we think about the wrath of God, what do we normally go to? What is the thing we instantly think about? We think about the wrath of God that's meted out on the final day, right? We instantly go to that. God's wrath that will be revealed for all eternity upon the sons of disobedience. And that is true, and that will happen. His wrath will be meted out to them and they will suffer under the wrath of God forever and ever and ever in a very real place called hell. So no doubt, when Christ returns to this earth, the wrath of God, it will be expressed. It will be expressed in the division between the sheep and the goats and the everlasting punishment that the goats will go into. That is the wrath of God. As a matter of fact, it's wonderful that this took place on this day. Take out your bulletin and look at the very bottom on the last page. I think it's in the last page. I'll tore mine out. And look at the New City Catechism, question number 28. Because this talks all about this. What happens after death to those not united by, to Christ by faith? At the day of judgment, they will receive the fearful but just sentence of condemnation pronounced against them. They will be cast out from the favorable presence of God into hell to be justly and grievously punished forever. That is the wrath of God. But I want you to notice something. Look back at verse 6. 
He doesn't say that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Look at what he says then. He says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. He's using a present tense word there. The wrath of God, present tense, is being revealed from heaven right now. In other words, what this says is this. God, holy God, has a subtle attitude against sin. Holy God is wrathful against sin. God is angry with sinners. God, is, God will be angry with sinners on that day, and God is angry with sinners today, right now, 2023. He is angry with sinners right now. Psalm chapter 7, verse 11 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. God has indignation every day. God, in His perfections, He has a, a settled position of wrath against sin. He hates sin. He will judge sin. And though the wrath of God, yes, has a future final aspect to it, the wrath of God, this says, is being revealed today. How is that happening? How, how is the wrath of God finding expression today? Well, it is seen in all the effects of sin. It is seen in all the expressions of what we see with sin, the consequences of sin. That, that is the wrath of God. When God told Adam in the day that you sinned, you will surely die. We have been seeing God's wrathful expressions against sin ever since that day. From the very first day that sin entered into the, the experience of mankind. Sin. God cursed this planet on that day because of the sin of man. That is an expression of the wrath of God. So then all of the physical effects of sin that we speak of, that is an expression of the wrath of God. Now, we, we have to be careful here because if you are a child of God, you're no longer under the wrath of God. And even though you say, okay, well, well how can you explain the consequences of sin? I experienced because I, I still, sadly, I still sin, and I still experience consequences. The consequences you experience are not the consequences that come from a God who is wrathful against sin. It is from a God who is your Father. And yes, He hates your sin in your life, but He is disciplining you as a Father, not as a wrathful God who will pour out wrath upon you. I love what our confession says when it talks about believers Going, uh, going into sin and committing sin, it says we can experience the fatherly displeasure of God. And that is the difference. That is the difference there. But yet we see in this world, lost mankind, and they're meeting with all of these effects of the wrath of God. We see the expressions of, of God's settled attitude against sin. All the disease we see, all the sickness, all the, all the death we see in this world, that is the expression that God gives that He is not satisfied with sin. He is wrathful against sin. And there are, there are so many other effects of sin, so many other effects of, of the wrath of God against sin that we can talk about. I just jotted down a small list. We could get into many things other, other, uh, in each one of these, but we could talk about the emotional effects of sin, the relational effects of sin, social effects, 
cultural effects, societal effects of sin because sinners reject the truth of God and they reject the God of the truth. Now, one more thing I want you to notice in Ephesians chapter 5. Fifth, it is certain that all those who have this hope purify themselves. What is the result of this kind of teaching what Paul is saying here? What is the result of this in the life of believers? What is the result of knowing these truths? If you are actually truly, really saved. Is it because I really think that this is a test of salvation. I believe this is truly a test of whether someone can know if they're saved or not. Because when we hear the truth of verses 5 and 6, where does it lead us? Do you know where it is to lead believers? Look at verse 7. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. This is where it leads us. To say, Lord, this, this is how a world lives that doesn't know you. Just like this. But, but Lord, I know you. I know you. That Lord, this, these verses show this is how a world lives that doesn't love you, Lord. Lord, I love you. By your grace, I've come to love you. Lord, this is how a world lives that has no regard for your law, a world that has no regard for what pleases you, a world that has no regard for, for how to live for your glory. But Lord, I want to do all those things. Lord, I want to know your law. I want to live to please you. I want to live for your glory, Lord. Therefore, Lord, help me to never live like them. Lord, help me not to ever live like them. So, therefore, you see, it says, do not be partakers with them. Because the real difference between saved people and lost people is the true saving knowledge of God. Here's the difference. I have a new nature that seeks to love the Lord. And I have a new love for God. And it is all by grace. In other words, when you teach these warnings that are listed here to believers, what does it do? It doesn't lead them to defend their sinful lives. Well, you can't, I'm a Christian. I remember making that decision in my life. It doesn't, it doesn't do that with real believers. No, what these warnings do with real believers is it leads them on to holiness. That's what these warnings are for. These warnings in Scripture spur believers on in their hearts to love Christ, to serve Christ. These things listed in, listed in verse 5 are, are, are what characterizes people who don't know Christ. There are patterns of, of lives of people who do not know the Lord Jesus Christ. But praise God, if you know the Lord, if you are a true believer, this is not how you want to live. And it should break our hearts whenever we do fall into a, a, a sin or even a, a short pattern of living like this. Because in our heart of hearts, we don't want to live this way. Because this is not who we are. Turn over one more time to 1 John and then, and then we'll be done. 1 John chapter 3. Just, just three verses I want to read here and then we'll be finished. 1 John chapter 3 verses 1, 2, and 3. John writes this, <clears throat> see how great a love the Father, in other words, literally, see, 
see what kind of love. See, see what altogether different kind of love. See what great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called children of God. Did you get that, children of God? No, not the sons of disobedience, not children of wrath, but children of God. And such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know Him. Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Now, boy, we, we, would love, we would love to know that right now, right? We would love to just look forward in time, wouldn't we? And just see everything that we're going to be, right? Everything that this says that we, we don't know. But we can't do that. We can't do that. We don't know, as it says here, as yet what we will be. But we do know this. Look at what it says. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. Now look at verse 3. And everyone, every, you know, you ought to circle that word in your Bible. If you write in your Bible, you ought to just circle that word. Everyone. There's not, there's not one single person who drops off here. This is everyone. And everyone who has this hope fixed on Him, what do they do? He purifies Himself just as He is pure. I want to ask you this. Is this your hope? Are you numbered in this group? Is this your hope? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And you know what? We shouldn't have to have to hear the answer from your mouth. We should be able to listen to what your life says. Because what does your life say? What does what your life give an answer to that question? What does the Word of God say about your life? Let's pray. Well, Father in Heaven, we, we thank You for Your Word. The, the certainty of Your Word that You have not left us uh, groping around for, for some type of spiritual guidance within ourselves for, for the way that we should walk. It's not just left up to guesswork, not up to sort of internally devising what we ought to do, but uh, Father, You have laid down before us Your Word, which is a lamp for our feet and a, and a light for our path. And you've given us your Holy Spirit that we might understand your word. And it is by his power within us that we may walk in your word. So Father, I pray that we would just look at these verses and we would come to your conclusion about our lives. And Father, I pray for anyone in this place right now who does not know you as Lord and Savior. They do not know you, and Father, in their heart of hearts, they know that they do not know you as their Lord and as their Savior. I pray that even right now, Father, that the blinders would fall off of their eyes, that they would clearly, with, with 2020 spiritual vision, Father, that they may see their lostness, and that they may clearly see their need to repent of their sin and to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ 
this very moment. Father, I thank you that Christ loves to save sinners. All who will come to him, Scripture says, he will in no wise cast out. So I pray today, Father, that any in this place who do not know Christ, that they will humble their proud, proud hearts, and they will bow the knee in their heart before the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that even now they will be transferred into a new kingdom where they see Christ as the King. And I ask this in His name. Amen. Please take your hymnals. Turn to hymn number 388. Number 388, He Will Hold Me Fast. 